fasting means absolutely nothing. Eating could be very good for you or very bad for you, and fasting is the same way. If your fasting involves keeping breakfast, you're putting your life at risk. There's no doubt about it. Welcome to the Drew Proit Podcast. Each week, we explore the inner workings of the brain and the body with one of the brightest minds in wellness, medicine, and mindset. This week's guest is Dr. Walter Longo. Dr. Longo is an internationally recognized leader in the field of aging studies and related diseases. His discoveries include some of the major genetic pathways that regulate aging and life-threatening diseases and the identification of a genetic mutation that protects individuals from several common diseases. In 2015, after a number of his papers were among the most widely cited in the biomedical field, Time Magazine called him a guru of longevity. Currently, Dr. Longo is a professor of biogerontology and biological sciences and a director of the Institute of Longevity of the School of Gerontology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. He's also the director of oncology and longevity program at IFOM in Milan. He is additionally the scientific director of the Creates Cures Foundation and the Walter Longo Foundation. Dr. Longo is also the author of The Longevity Diet, which is his take on 25 years of research on aging, nutrition, and diseases across the globe. On today's podcast with Dr. Longo, we dive into a bunch of different topics, including why some of the longest living societies in the world eat breakfast in the morning. Not our American-style breakfast, but some breakfast. What does that breakfast look like? Well, stay tuned. You're going to learn more about that. Dr. Longo also talks about the importance of pulsing fasting into our lifestyle rather than having more extreme approaches to fasting, which in his opinion have some damaging uh, effects on the body. So it's going to be really interesting to hear about how he thinks some of the longest living societies in the world fast. Uh, This is a fascinating interview. We cover a lot of different topics in addition to those two that I just mentioned. Stay tuned. I think you're going to love it. Dr. Longo, welcome to the podcast studio. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here. I selfishly want to dive into, before we go into the fasting mimicking diet, the longevity diet, all your work and research that's there, uh, and we explain how it works, I selfishly want to jump into the topic of breakfast because you were one of the first people that I had heard that there is a power from all these epidemiological studies that we've seen out there of including some amount of food in the morning. Can you talk about that? And what do you mean by that exactly? Yes, I mean that if you look at now meta-analysis, so studies containing lots of studies, right? Uh, They indicate very clearly, uh, and not just for overall mortality, but also diabetes, cardiovascular disease, people that skip breakfast have problems. And now you could say, well, they have problems because they have other bad behaviors, right? They're, but um, then you still have to be surprised. Why doesn't, if you fast, let's say for 16 hours or 18 hours and you skip breakfast, why doesn't that counterbalance whatever bad habit you might have? You should at least get a neutral effect. But no, we see shortening of lifespan and we see more cardiovascular disease and we see uh, association with more uh, diabetes, et cetera. So that's when you have to say, probably not such a good idea. And uh, let, if we're going to skip something, it should not be breakfast. Uh, and so, you know, 
dinner, it's a possibility. I'm a fan of, of lunch, so I skip lunch. And, uh, and I've been doing it for 20 years. And I think this seems to be the safest way to go, uh, you know, if you consider all the studies out there. For the longest living groups that are out there, that you study and that you look at, in addition to your own trials that you're doing in, in animals and then observing what happens in human beings as well too and the trials with them, what do you think is happening when people have breakfast in the morning? Why does it seem to be beneficial? And let's define what breakfast is because we live in America and as soon as you say breakfast, people have an idea of pancakes, cereals, sugary stuff. So what do you think is happening on a mechanistic level and what does these longest living groups, what does their breakfast look like? Yes, mechanistically, um, it could be that the fasting, we, nobody knows, first of all, right? But it's just very consistent. Uh, it could be that the fasting, when it gets to too long periods, so for example, we know in people that are at risk for gallstone formation and gallbladder operation, those that fast for 16 hours um, have twice as much a risk as those that fast for less than 10 hours. Um, so, so it could be something in that domain, you know, for example, what if, uh, this continuous generation of lots of fatty acids and lots of ketone bodies is actually a problem, right? So it could be, right? That, that it's now pushing the cells all over the body or maybe some cells to do something that they shouldn't do. Uh, for example, what about fat accumulation in the heart or in some tissues? Could that be happening and, and could that be... Uh, causing these problems. We don't know. Uh, could also be, in the long run, could it be reprogramming um, metabolism to make people insulin resistant. So in the short term, you become sensitive. And then in the long run, you become resistant. And, um, and so there is lots of these things that are um, known for other type of dietary interventions. So it is possible that this long fasting period is uh, is causing changes that, that are then detrimental. And then, you know, what is breakfast? Well, again, in these questionnaires, in all these surveys, they just call you up and say, do you have breakfast, yes or no, right? And, uh, uh, and that's all they ask. And some uh, studies that I remember were looking at how many calories should be in that breakfast. Um, and that I remember 400 calories as being the, the cutoff point, right? Do you have at least 400 kilocalories or not? Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's something that it could be a good range for people to, uh, to think about, let's say, three to 400 calories minimum uh, should be the breakfast, yeah. So recently I came across this review paper about centenarians and people in their 90s and centenarians, people in their 100. And it was a small paper. It was about like 60 or so people. But it was talking about their sort of classic sort of salty breakfast they would have in the morning in Italy. And uh, I'm curious, what did you see people eating in Italy when they would break their fast first thing in the morning? This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. Wild-caught salmon is one of my favorite go-tos to get brain-supporting anti-inflammatory fats and clean protein into my diet, but I don't just trust any old place when it comes to buying fish. Some places even intentionally mislabel their fish to make more money, so I always stock my freezer with super high-quality salmon from Butcher Box. ButcherBox only uses wild-caught, sustainably harvested Alaskan salmon, and they'll deliver it right to your door 
for an amazing price. In addition to salmon, they've got 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and other types of humanely raised meats too, so you can get all the protein you need for your weekly meal prep in one place and even order it in advance. So even when life gets a little busy, which it does, I always have all the meat and seafood I need for my healthy meals on hand because ButcherBox makes it super duper easy. Sign up at butcherbox.com backslash Drew and you'll receive two pounds of free salmon in your first box. That's two pounds of free salmon. If you're signing up for the first time, go to butcher, B-U-T-C-H-E-R, box, B-O-X, dot com, slash D-H-R-U. That's butcherbox.com, backslash Drew. I'm turning 40 years old, and I can honestly say that I've never felt better. So many people have this looming fear around getting older because they think it has to come with chronic disease, losing their mobility, maybe losing their agility, and losing their mental acuity, which means not being able to do all the things they love anymore. If that were the case, I would be worried about getting older too, but it doesn't have to be that way. I learned that through the power of epigenetics, I can turn off my aging genes and turn on my longevity genes simply by living a healthy lifestyle, optimizing my diet, and taking the right supplements. I'm here to tell you that it is possible to get older and to truly stay young on the inside, but sometimes we need a little help knowing exactly how to do it. That's why I'm super excited to tell you guys about Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by top scientists from acclaimed universities in the field of aging, genetics, and biometrics. Its mission is to help people live long, healthy, productive lives by optimizing their bodies from the inside out. Inside Tracker's cutting edge technology analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness tracker data, and gives you actionable, personalized, that's the keyword, personalized tips on how you can improve your health span. Their new inner age test allows you to see how your inner age compares with your chronological age and gives you a longevity-focused plan with science-backed recommendations to help you make sure your best days are still ahead of you. And now you can connect Inside Tracker to your Apple Watch to unlock deeper, more precise insights into your personalized health plan with real-time exercise, resting heart rate and sleep data synced within your inside tracker plan you can truly wear your health on your sleeve right now inside tracker is offering my podcast community 20% off just go to insidetracker.com/drew that's d h r u to get your discount code and to try it for yourself that's inside tracker.com/d h r u for 20% off most people were just having breakfast, uh, a pretty good size breakfast, uh, nothing like the American breakfast. And breakfast could be yogurt or, or milk or, or you know bread. And but I would say that almost everybody I know uh, and everybody that I observed that then became a centenarian, like Salvatore Caruso, who got to 110, and the oldest man in Europe, he will have breakfast every morning. Uh, and every centenarian that I've ever met uh, uh, will have some form of breakfast every morning. Now, centenarians are also uh, very, probably, from everything we see, they're probably a very special group, meaning they're like Emma Morano. I followed her until she got to 117. And, um, and when you look at Emma, uh, I remember this article in the New York Times talking about <laughs> um, you know, eating three eggs a day and 150 grams of, of meat every day. And no husband. That was also in the title. Yeah. Eat, three, eat raw eggs and have no husband was her success exactly, for longevity. Exactly, yeah. So people love, journalists love the stories, but then they don't talk about 
the the real story, which is six brothers and sisters over they made it over the age of eighty eight. One sister made it to one hundred and two. <laughs> so when you see that. Uh, everything is possible, but extremely unlikely that there is not a very strong genetic component. So, so now we know that you know in mice and our work that we do in in Ecuador with growth hormone receptor deficiency, we know that just one single mutation in the gene in the genome in your genes can make an incredible difference in whether you get diseases or whether you live long or short. So yeah, so if you're born with the right genetic makeup, uh, then uh, you could have no breakfast and probably still be okay, right? So, but that's an extremely rare population. So I wouldn't ever use the this one in a million cases uh, to to tell people what to do. And, and again, most of them did have breakfast, but let's say that some didn't. It's, it's really relevant. Like uh, Emma Morano, three eggs a day, 150 grams of raw meat. By the way, Carlo Bava, her physician, gave her that the raw meat after she made it, I think, at, at, at 200 because she was starting to be anemic. Mm. Uh, and so that's when he intervened, right? So, But you see how the story is very different from the way uh, it was told by the New York Times. Yeah. yeah, even in the New York Times, you were quoted, just paraphrasing, you were saying, for every one of these centenarians, we'll see a different story. So Everybody's we don't want to put too much emphasis in one thing or another that's there. Everybody's you know, the, the reason that I wanted to bring up breakfast as a topic is that with this explosion, largely due to your research that's there and other colleagues of yours, you have so many more people paying attention to fasting ever than before. I can remember when I first got introduced to the world of functional medicine, was working with a cardiologist in New York at the time and helping him build his you know, brand and write his books and everything. When we would talk about fasting, this is in the year 2008, still it was not widely known and you would often have publications that would call an expert or a nutritionist at NYU or somewhere else or Cornell or this place or that said fasting is dangerous, we have no studies on it and it was just lack of awareness and there wasn't as much research that's out there. Now, there's way more research that's out there and generally in America when most people talk about fasting and them incorporating it into their routine in some sort of way and time-restricted eating, they generally are talking about skipping breakfast. So how do you feel about, in one hand, there's this explosion of people talking about fasting, doing fasting, but in another, at least here in America, a lot of people are maybe missing a key component, which is that they're skipping the breakfast piece. Yes. Yeah, so this brings me to what I always say in almost every interview, fasting means absolutely nothing, right? It, like eating means absolutely nothing. So what do you eat? How much of it you eat? So eating could be very good for you or very bad for you. And fasting is the same way. So uh, I would say skipping breakfast. If your fasting involves skipping breakfast, you're putting your life at risk. There's no doubt about it. Uh, now you could say, well, what if all these epidemiological studies are really catching something else? Yes, it's possible, but this is why you're putting your life at risk. You're not necessarily killing yourself, but the, the numbers are against you. Let's put it this way. Uh, then you could have a genetic, uh, you know, you could be genetically predisposed to be fine with skipping breakfast, or you could be doing lots of things that make you live very long skipping breakfast, but you're certainly taking a chance. Um, so, so yeah, so I think that's it's very important. We got to get away from, I always hear, oh, but uh, all religions have fasting, and so it must be good for you. No, right? There's, this, the, 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 there's a lot of things that are out there that are... So, for example, most people don't understand that if you fast for very l short, 
you don't even enter a ketogenic state. Uh, let's say and how short. What's what let's say if you fast less than a day, right? Mm -hmm. You're not even entering a ketogenic state. Uh, but people don't know that if you fast for too long, you're now entering a low metabolic state. So eventually, your body. So you have to fast for just the right amount, right? And uh, otherwise, you you slow down, and the body basically detects this very harsh environment. I'm not eating for a long time, so I better save everything I can. And this, we don't know for sure, but probably involves some epigenetic changes. So the body now detecting this harsh environment changes the DNA modifications, and this DNA modification now are telling slow down, let's try to save as much energy as possible and put it away. And that's exactly what you don't want, right? So, so now imagine, and we see this in, in the mouse studies, right? So we, we feed them a high fat, high calorie diet, and then we do the fasting making diet once a month. And after they get off the fasting making diet, they're still burning fat, right? But at some point, if we keep it long enough, they might start doing exactly the opposite. They're still accumulating fat when they shouldn't be accumulating fat. Right? So, so this just the same way that maybe epigenetically, we suspect they keep burning fat, epigenetically, you can keep accumulating fat. And um, yeah, so then you have to treat this as a food-based medicine. And, uh, and you have to know exactly what it does and when, and then eventually you're gonna have to personalize it, right? And not just a fasting-making diet, but everything you do with nutrition. So, so people, for example, think, I have a high-protein diet that helps me losing weight um, because maybe I eat less fat, I eat less carbohydrate. But the high-protein diet, because the amino, amino acids are controlling the hypothalamus, the IGF-1, the leptin, et cetera, et cetera, that certain amino acids within the protein diet, if, if high-protein, if you pick a certain uh, type of diet, those can make it very hard for you to lose weight because they're now telling the hypothalamus and the system, again, you should gain weight and you should accumulate fat, right? So it, we're just beginning to enter this nutri-technology world where we go from just food to food controls everything for good reasons, right? So food is at the center of reproduction, is at the center of evolution, right? So it makes sense that it will, as we've shown, control also stem cell, embryonic stem cell, like uh, activation and regeneration. So let's give a little bit of background context. Uh, you know, when in your work did you first come across caloric restriction? And if you could just share a little bit about what we know about caloric restriction and its tie into longevity. And then through that process, how did the interest come in to say, how can we mimic some of these aspects, but not maybe some of the downsides that are typically associated with, in your case, in your story, you were looking at, I believe, water-only fasting for cancer patients. Is that correct? Yeah, so I started with, with fasting, actually, in day one of, uh, of my graduate work here at UCLA, we're like, like less than a mile away, and uh, with uh, Steve Clark, actually, we were starving bacteria. So I went from starving bacteria with Steve Clark to starving people with Roy Walford. And Roy Walford was a superstar of nutrition and, and aging here at UCLA. He was a medical doctor. And uh, and so, yeah, from day one of my graduate work, and then I went to so starving bacteria to starving people and mice and back to starving yeast, right? So, and, uh, and, and it was, I always say it's funny because at that time, everybody just thought it was the worst thing you could possibly do, right? So, so even my colleagues working in yeast were making fun of us for working on starving yeast. 
uh, in bacteria, that was seen as also a boring uh, uh, topic, right? Starving bacteria. So yeah, so I worked on this for, from day one, and at some point it just exploded. I think it was around I don't know ten years ago, but before that it was just uh, not not uh, viewed as a very uh, interesting. People were trying topic. to tell you don't waste your time. It was just everybody in those days in the nineties was focusing on growth and cancer and these oncogenes, and so no matter what system you worked on, people were excited about things that were very active, and starvation mm. was seen as something like. Why would you possibly uh, study um, things that are starving? It makes no sense, right? So, and also the other thing that everybody felt that was boring was aging, right? <laughs> and now it's a very different world, right? So, but back then people thought, why would you possibly study aging? Who cares? Uh, so, yeah, so lots have changed. But um, then jumping ahead, say two two years later, then we in in the late in two thousand eight or so, we were doing a trial. Uh, we, we had results with mice showing that if we starve mice with water-only fasting, the mice will become, become very protected against chemotherapy. And they, we will see all alive if they starve and all dead in some cases if they ate normally. And so we, we started a clinical trial in Norris Cancer Center in at USC. And, uh, and we thought, of course, everybody's going to do it. Uh, people have cancer. If I have cancer, I would have said, give me anything. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. But that was not the case, and, and uh, lots of patients struggled, refused to get in the trial. The oncologists were worried, um, and so we went to the National Cancer Institute and the National Institute on Aging, and uh, and they funded research on the, on the fasting mimicking diet. You know, so that's uh, that's how we came up with it with lots of government funding. And so let's just build up the key pillars of the fasting mimicking diet. So if you're explaining to somebody, you have a center out here in Santa Monica, I believe that's still there, yes. right? Uh, some patient comes in, they're understanding the basics of the fasting mimic diet. How do you sell a, set up the pillars of what it is and also what it isn't? Yes, if, if by pillars you mean how do we get to whether it's everyday diet and or the fasting mimicking diet, uh, we we get there by looking at uh, epidemiological studies, we like clinical research, uh, studies of centenarians, and then basic research focus on longevity, healthy longevity. That's how we decide what to do, right? Um, and so um, then, if you think about more practically, what is a fasting mimicking diet, and how you come up with it? Then we come up with it by um, making it um, feasible for people. So they have to be able to actually uh, do it and then making it effective. So we look at every ingredient, we understand every ingredient and how every ingredient is gonna affect the starvation response, right? So it's designed to make the system believe it's not fasting, it, it, it is not eating at all. Um, and so this is why it's a high fat, low sugar, and low protein diet. So that's enough. We keep in just enough complex carbohydrate in there to allow people to uh, eat it uh, without uh, interfering with the with the starvation response. You know, the fasting response. Um, and then, of course, you have to lower the calories, but you don't want to lower it to the point where you you in the salts, for example. So we want to keep a certain level of salts and calories so that uh, the blood pressure doesn't drop to too low levels. The the glucose the fasting glucose doesn't drop to levels that are too low. Yeah, so safety is also very important because 
people do this at the beginning, people, so we have lots of clinical trials running. Uh, but even the clinical trials, they're not doing it in the hospital, right? They're, they're taking it at home, right? This is one exception. In Italy, we're running a clinical trial for children with type 1 diabetes. That's the only uh, trial we've ever done with it's inpatient. People have to check into the hospital, the child, and, and the fasting making diet is given to them uh, in the hospital. And so, like, if our listeners were watching somebody go through the process and they could hit fast forward over the, you know, uh, few-day period while they're going through this fasting mimicking diet, what would they imagine that somebody's uh, day looks like? And do you tell them to, like, reduce activity level or anything else like that that typically would correspond with, uh, you know, like a longer uh, fast that people would be on? We don't, uh, uh, it, I think it's good to be physically active, but it's not good to exercise, right? So it's, it's okay to be walking and you can walk a lot. You just have to pay attention, make sure that you feel fine, uh, but, uh, but don't exercise. Uh, lots of the exercises require quick high levels of glucose or sufficient levels of glucose. And if that uh, is not available, um, then, you know, you, you can have somebody pass out. Um, this is not that common, but uh, so lots of people could do this uh, in exercise. So we, we, in fact, we finished a trial where we uh, uh, looked at young athletes that were working out, and we thought that by the end of the fasting mimicking diet, uh, the, their performance would be reduced like, acutely, and then, you know, we were hoping that acutely would be reduced and then eventually maybe even be better. But we were surprised to see it was not reduced, right? So they could still lift weights at the same level. So, uh, but maybe because the weight lifting may not require uh, as much uh, um, influx of, of, or levels of glucose as um, some other um, uh, sport activity. Um, so, so we don't know. So we, we, um, we recommend that people don't, uh, do strenuous exercise at least. You know, I've heard you in a past interview say that if you look at through, you know, the fasting mimicking diet and what you're trying to achieve by putting people on it, you're trying to recreate a little bit of like a evolutionary biological history. If we look through that lens, we're trying to create a circumstance that used to exist but don't, no longer exists because of our modern lifestyle. What is that circumstance and situation that you're trying to put the bodies in and how could you compare that to thousands of years ago when we would naturally be in that process? Yeah, the circumstance that we didn't understand actually molecularly, now we're understanding more and more. We now have lots of evidence both from clinical trials and, and mouse studies that there is a switch. Um, and so in let's say 10,000 years ago uh if it was summer and uh, and there was a lot of fruits available you want to eat it all essentially right uh and then you want to become insulin resistant right so we think of diabetes and insulin resistance and obesity as a bad disease but they may not be a disease at all right so it may be part of our necessity to become like the emperor penguins of the south pole very big, so then when the winter comes, or when they're, in their case, they go several months with no food, uh, then you can survive. And uh, so, of course, then we unavoidably will have met that period of no food. But since, I don't know, 60 or 70 years ago, uh, that never comes, right? So there's just the summer and the eating period. And, and so this is why people are stuck in this insulin-resistant 
fat accumulating mode all the time. Where previously we should only had it for a little bit of time. And would you say that it was part of our survival as a species? It had to be. I mean, it's hard to go back 10,000 years and be sure, but it had to be because we see it in, in, in the penguin and lots of lots of animals, right? So, uh, so yeah, it had to be that when it was, it, it, it's not necessarily the summer, but when the food, the moment of the year where you could get lots of food, you had to eat as much as possible because it was almost guaranteed that there'd be maybe several months where there was nothing available. And uh, yeah, so that then was required. Uh, for the survival of the species. And so today, contrasting with our modern life, just for folks that are more new to your work and your research that's out there, we, through our modern life, process food through refined carbohydrates, a plentiful amount through too much protein, which also we'll talk about in a second, uh, too much of the wrong type of fats that are out there. We are in this permanent environment where it's difficult for people to set that same circumstance up because there's too much abundance that's around us. So in a way now, you're trying to help us step back because if we don't, the world is heading in the wrong direction. Is that a fair assessment of? Yeah, it's not uh, difficult, it's impossible, right? Because um, are you going to, let's say that it takes three or four days minimum of no food to switch, um, are you going to get that, right? So with with people now being told for the past 20 or 30 years, you should eat six times a day. Um, so yeah, that's what we heard in this panic about eat, 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 because otherwise uh, you're going to have problems. So so most people are just scared to um, to go even one day with no food. And, um, and I always found it entertaining this idea of five or six meals a day because I always thought, imagine the millions of people that might get to 8 p.m. one day and say, I only ate twice today. So I got I got I have another three or four meals to go, you know. <laughs> and not surprisingly, when Sachin Panda looked at uh, the feeding pattern, uh, people ate for f- 15 hours a day, right? So yeah, so it's lots of opportunities to eat and lots of opportunities to overeat, and zero opportunities, of course, considering and also the medical uh, community uh, and the like you were saying earlier. Oh, no, no, don't fast because no forms of fasting because that's dangerous. Um, so then, yeah, you'll never meet that, those five days that are required to get you in the winter mode and start instead of accumulating fat, burning fats. Yeah. You know, we talked a little about cancer patients. You talked about doing this with like kids who are type one diabetic. What are some of the things that you see when you put people on this that are in some sort of disease state? And then also because you've had this explosion through uh, you know the larger company El Nutra and like the system of people going on Prolon and being able to buy the box and do it at home, you have a huge amount of people in the wellness community that also realize like, look, even if I eat really healthy and I eat better quality food, I actually am not really fasting for that long of a time. So let me go on the program and do it. So first with people in disease states, like how profound are the results? Like what have you seen? And then let's talk about people, probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast too, who think of themselves as pretty healthy, but then go on it. And what do they see? Yes. So um, we had in our clinic, for example, we followed a doctor right? and, and this physician uh, was on lots of medication for hypertension and diabetes, right? So diabetes and hypertension. And um, and so we, the, our team started working on him 
but after nine months of the everyday longevity diet, uh, things started to change for his weight and things started to change a little bit for his blood pressure, but nothing was changing for his fasting glucose. It was still 130. Um, and I'm, I'm telling you the story, but I have also have the clinical trials. And um, then he go, does three cycles of the fasting making diet. And you see the chart going like stable, stable for nine months to as soon as he starts with the FMD, then the switch, right? Um, so, so just to make it clear, he did three cycles and how much time in between those cycles each? Roughly? It was maybe couple of months, two okay, or three months between yep. each cycle, let's say, right? In the clinical trials, we did it once a month for either three cycles or four cycles. But in his case, uh, he did it every two or two, two or three months or so. And um, yeah, so now the combination of this, these two worked extremely well. Whereas you can imagine if after nine months, you have this diabetes and you're starting to get discouraged because you're saying it's not working. And, and I don't know, I changed my diet. It, it was not a huge change in his diet, but it's a significant change. And um, so, yeah, so two years later now is now the weight is there, the, the blood pressure is back to normal, the um, fasting glucose is back to normal. He doesn't have diabetes, he doesn't have heart, uh, uh, hypertension, and he's off drugs, all of the drugs, right? So he went from three or four drugs to zero. So that's what you want, right? So you want two years, you don't want two months, oh, look how great it is and you're cured from diabetes. No, you wanna take it slow. You wanna make sure that it's reasonable and feasible for that person for the rest of their lives. And it's not that invasive. And yeah, so they're gonna maintain it. Because um, sometimes, and we'll get back to this, but I just wanna make this point. You've shared that sometimes when people go on a very invasive program, even if they get short-term results, if they yo-yo, that's very dangerous. And we'll. We can talk about that a little bit later, but I yeah. just want to make that note. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so it, it was worse than not having done anything at all, right? So if you start cycling, more than 10% of weight loss and 10% of weight regain, it would have been better to do nothing at all. Stay at your original weight and, and, and do nothing. Mind-blowing. That's really mind-blowing for a lot of people. So this doctor that you had going through the program, he's a perfect example of somebody who is able to get off of you know medications and make these dramatic changes in their life. What do you find for people are some of the anecdotal things that you hear from people who consider themselves as maybe eating a more whole foods diet. They're not eating ultra processed foods, right? Um, doesn't mean that their diet is perfect or this or that, but there could be a wide variety. What do you see with those individuals? I would probably put myself in that category. When they go and they do uh, fasting mimicking diet, uh, what kind of things do they notice? Anecdotally, um, well, first of all, what I talk, talked about with the doctor was then confirmed by clinical trials. So we're about to publish uh, intervention on diabetes patient and hypertension patients, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to be uh, very much consistent and supportive. Uh, but other, I mean, of course, people talk about um, memory improvement, you know, and being able to do things and remember things much better. Uh, there are reports of the skin. Uh, lots of people say the skin, my skin uh, looks better. I look and, younger. And, and um, for example, memory. What would be going on that your memory, that you'd have better memory or better focus? Because I've had some friends that have gone through the program and they have shared things like that. Yeah. What's going on inside the body that would lead to those, those sensations? Yeah, so if you look at Alzheimer's research, 
is focused on lots of drugs, targeting beta amyloid accumulation and lots of specific targets. If you, if you uh, look at what happens with a fasting-making diet in your brain, uh, I challenge anybody to come up with something that will alter brain metabolism more than fasting and a fasting-making diet. So, so your brain now, after five days on a fasting-making diet, is probably gaining about 50% of its energy from ketone bodies. Uh, and those ketone bodies, we're starting to suspect, may not come uh, from from the liver, and they may be coming from the brain itself. So mm-hmm. now the the brain may be making ketone bodies. Um, so yeah, you're changing brain metabolism, and you're um, modifying the type of cells that are in the brain. We are about to publish a, a paper in mice uh, modifying the inflammatory state of the brain, but also probably modifying uh, the systemic the system like leptin ghrelin, all these hunger hormones, um, IGF-1, growth factor, uh, insulin level. So all of these are systemic. They're all over your system, but they also make it to the brain and they're regulating brain function. So, so you're changing so many things that, um, that um, it would, uh, we don't know what the effects are going to be. We're also doing a, a trial on Alzheimer's. We already recruited the first 30 patients. Uh, so our hope is that this rewiring of brain metabolism, and by particularly the movement from fasting mimicking conditions to regular diet, this it could be the answer. Now, it's not only about fasting, but it's about going from fasting to refeeding. And this we see very clearly, for example, when we, da- we take mice, we damage the pancreas, they stop making insulin. Then we do cycles of fasting, making diet, and refeeding, and we see the cells of the uh, of the pancreas uh, regenerating and, and start. And we see a, a pattern, an embryonic developmental pattern. What does it mean? That the pancreas is starting to look a lot like the, it looked when the the mouse was first born. Um, so, is that happening in the brain? Well, it's a little harder because, uh, of course. Um, Lots of the cells of the brain, the neurons don't divide, or most of the neurons don't divide. But uh, what if there was so much change in the brain cells that now uh, you have a rejuvenated brain, uh, or less, uh, less certainly less in, in inflamed and rejuvenated? We don't know in humans. We know in, in mice because we looked at brain neural stem cells, and and they are increased. And you know the mice are doing better cognitively, so we we see them have better memory longer during uh, aging we don't know in people but uh, that's certainly what we what we're uh, hoping for so those are some of the things that people notice you know memory better skin more energy is a lot is one that i hear a lot you know like a better resetting in terms of like their blood sugar sort of balancing uh, throughout the day so jumping forward to this topic of refeeding you know in america we tend to take things to extremes so if somebody says that fasting mimicking is good immediately somebody thinks well i'm just going to eat this way forever right help us understand why that's really maybe not the right approach and what then does the foundation which is really the longevity diet that you wrote about inside of your book what are the foundations of that to maintain some of the beneficial things that we want to do in between these fasting periods Yes, so people, especially those with, they might have disorders, like eating disorders, right, tend to say, okay, well, now I'll do this all the time. I'll do it once every two weeks. 
And, and no, you don't want to do that. And in fact, uh, I say you want to do it when you need to do it. Now, in a, in a country where over 70% of people are overweight or obese, uh, and now Europe is about 50%, so Europe is not that far behind. Um, lots of people need to do it quite often, right? So it could be, let's say, three to five times a year. Um, and um, But that's it, right? So if you do it three times, that's 15 days a year. If you do it five times, is is you know 25 days a year. Um, so it, yeah, so that's that's of course in the diabetes trial, for example, we asked the patient to do it every month for 12 months, but they had diabetes and most of them were obese with diabetes, right? So and the idea there is get where you need to get, and we you know I cannot talk about the results very much, but but it worked very well, right? So. Um, so get where you need to get in 12 months and then maybe you go to six times a year and then you go to four times a year and eventually you might be okay with, let's say, three to four times a year. And uh, yeah, but then the refeeding is, is as important and the, and the nourishment is as important as the restriction, right? So you have to have enough proteins. So for example, one thing I teach my students a lot of people that are vegan, um, you know, view this as almost in, as a religion. And, um, and there's nothing wrong with being vegan. You could be vegan and very healthy, but lots of vegans have problems. Why? Well, for example, fractures, right? Fractures, uh, different types of fractures can be as high as threefold higher in the vegans compared to the, the carnivores. Wow, and there's actual like studies for that yeah, to support that? Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. Okay, great. And there's also studies looking at uh, uh, the percentage of vegans that are deficient in... Uh, um, in amino acids, right? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. So, um, and, and of course, you can block that problem by eating. Let's say you eat too much legumes, you're gonna be deficient. Uh, you, if you eat only legumes, if you eat seeds, legumes, and nuts, now you can balance the the lack of certain amino acids in the legumes with the presence of these amino acids in the other uh, foods. But you have to. Be very consistent and maybe have a, a dietitian following you that knows what they're doing, right? So, yeah, so then in the in-between diet seems to be age-specific, first of all. So up to age 65, uh, lots of legumes, lots of whole grains, uh, some nuts every day, watching the weight. Refined carbohydrates are okay, but they should be limited. The sugars, a little bit. I always say, you want to put sugar in your coffee? Put sugar in your coffee. Don't be thinking that, um, that you can never have anything with sugar in it. These are obsessions that make no sense. Our body is fueled by sugar. And uh, so, you know, four grams and a little um, bag of sugar to put in your coffee make no difference whatsoever. But, now, uh, can I ask you one question about that? Yes. Often the advice around not doing it is that uh, maybe from a habitual standpoint or if people are wearing like continuous glucose monitors and they see if your day starts off with sort of this bigger glucose spike that happens and people tend to put a lot of sugar inside of their coffee and whatever it might be, that uh, you tend to maybe anecdotally, a lot of people see that there's more cravings for sugar throughout the day. Do you think there's any truth to that? Mm, I would say that if you are not happy, you're never gonna make it, right? Uh, if you're not happy with what you eat, with right? what you eat, if you start gaining extreme, an extreme doesn't have to be, you know, 10% carbohydrate. Um, 
it could be 50% carbohydrate when you're really happy with 70. Um, so if you're not happy, you're not going to make it. So if it's not enjoyable, if you don't enjoy your life, if you don't enjoy your diet, you're not going to be able to keep up the regular basic things that we know that end up working. It's just a matter of time and you're going to stop and you're going to regain weight and you're going to start eating and you're going to rebel against all these restrictions. And this we know from hundreds of studies, right? Um, yeah. So if the sugar makes no difference to you, that's okay. Don't have it. Absolutely. But if you're thinking, oh, I wish I could have some sh- a little bit of sugar in that coffee. And a little bit of sugar means four grams, not 40 grams, right? So, And then it means that the rest of the day, you probably don't have any sugar. Uh, so that's that's perfectly fine, but uh, um, right, and but, it's not sugar that's getting it's not sugar from coffee that's getting people in trouble. It's the Coca Colas and the other liquid calories and other things that are drink, drink, drank in high volumes. That's really like if we tried to add the same amount of sugar in our coffee that you would get from soda, yeah, it'd be actually very difficult, and you'd probably throw your coffee out because it doesn't taste. Yeah, good. yeah, but most people, I mean, I I wrote a book uh, a few years ago for children uh, nutrition, right? Then everybody said, oh, the Coca Cola and the uh, and the uh, gar- the trash food uh, is uh, is what's a problem, and we realized it was not a problem at all. At least in the in the southern European children, the problem was pasta, pizza, potatoes, rice fruit juices they were having a pound a day of this right wow and the and the the sugary drink they had once a week so there was like it, there was no comparison between and rice and bread will get into circulation about at the same speed as table sugar totally right. so it's very location specific for instance in like mexico i think mexico has the highest consumption yeah. of soda per capita yeah in the they united have like states a and, week. Yeah, but you have both right, right in mexico right, you you're gonna have the r- lots of rice and sure. lots of you know potatoes you and like, yeah so you, yeah exactly right so if you have both then you you're gonna be in trouble but uh so our recommendation was um watch out you know you have a, a, a you have to put it all together all these things that become sugar very rapidly whether it's rice or bread or, or potatoes uh, or pasta, pasta is a little bit slower, but uh, you have to say, how much of this do I have every day? There's this refined uh, carbohydrates or those that can become sugar very quickly. And that's what you need to intervene uh, in, in, not so much the four grams, but the 40 grams you might get from a, a small dish of potatoes, right? Sure. So why are you worrying so much about the four grams in the coffee in the morning, and then you're going to have a small portion of potatoes and think it's great or rice right rice how many people think oh i just had white rice uh great i mean it's healthy for me well that's sugar that's like (laughs) basically pure sugar so for these things and we've done a lot of episodes on this topic we talk a lot about metabolic health i'm a big proponent of you know people at least for a period of time wearing a glucose monitor just seeing you don't have to wear it forever but you know just going through that experience because we totally underestimate how much sugar is in our lifestyle even if you think that you eat very healthy if you shop at whole foods you shop at trader joe's these other places packaged foods just ubiquitously just has a lot of sugar and things so you were explaining the principles of the longevity diet so you're saying that carbs is okay you know again you're talking about primarily carbs, getting a lot of that from vegetables. So how much do you want to be limiting these refined carbohydrates to in terms of amounts when you're laying out the principles of the longevity diet for people? Yeah, again, you, you want to enjoy what you, what you eat. So like I have pasta almost every day, right? Usually uh, for dinner? For dinner, yeah. Dinner. Uh, but I, when I have pasta almost every day, I need to have just a coffee with one bag of sugar, four grams, 
for lunch. That's my lunch, right? That's mm-hmm. it. So if I have normal lunch of any kind, and then I have yeah. the, the dinner, and my dinner is huge, right? I don't have a huge dish of pasta. I have about, you know, 70 grams of pasta, and then lots of, you know, legumes, a lot of chickpeas, black beans, et cetera, et cetera, and then lots of vegetable. And uh, sometimes a little piece of fish? Well, then I fish maybe two to three times a week. Okay. Right? Two to three times a week, yeah. So so, um, so to me, it's something that I know. I've seen it with my grandparents. I've seen it with the Okinawans. I've seen it with the Loma Linda people. I know nobody can argue with me that, oh, no, people can't do that. Cause you mean like, you're ta- talking about like the pasta at night and the carbohydrates yeah, at yeah. dinner? I've seen it all over the world. You know, yeah. the, the Okinawans was sweet potatoes and rice, right? And they had record longevity. And the Sardinians is uh, minestrones and the Calabrians in minestrone. Loma Linda is, you know, s- similar Mediterranean-like uh, uh, lifestyle here in California. So, so yeah, so you can, you, be, you can be very long-lived and very healthy with a high-carbohydrate diet. And, and there's a uh, um, meta-analysis in Lancet uh, that came out a few years ago showing it's better to have an 80% carbohydrate diet than have a low-carbohydrate diet. And the 20% carbohydrate diet had the, the highest overall, added a 60% risk of mortality uh, increased risk of mortality compared to the 50 to 60% carbohydrate diet, right? And this was just looking mortality, uh, lifelong mortality or mortality risk. Um, so, so yeah, so you have to enjoy it. You have to have enough so you can maintain it for the rest of your life. But then you cannot have so much that you're going to start increasing your body mass index, your waist circumference, and uh, your fat percentage, right? So, Probably a good idea from time to time to go to the nutritionist, dietitian, and measure my either do a DEXA scan or do an impedentiometry and, and ask your your doctor or dietitian how much fat uh, because you could be thin and have thirty seven percent fat and right. that makes you obese basically. Uh, so yeah, so then people shouldn't worry anymore about counting calories or or, or anything like that. It should be more like, what is the consequence of what I'm doing on my fat percentage, on my muscle mass, um, on my waist circumference, et cetera, et cetera. So those, very easy. You can do it literally, um, you know, the fat percentage you can you can buy something at home and then maybe have it officially checked every year or so. And so it's very easy to do. And it allows you to say, my fat percentage is now 25, too much. So maybe I'm having too much rice and too much fruit juices and too much sugar, et cetera, et cetera. I need to cut down. And uh, and, and if your muscle mass uh, is decreasing, proteins, certain amino acids, leucine, et cetera, in the diet might be deficient. You might have to go higher and not just in the protein level, in the, in the variety of type of protein. So you might have to have more fish or more, um, you know, nuts for example and or if you're vegan to compensate for the lack uh, as i was saying earlier in the legumes yeah. since you're mentioning about protein would love to just touch on this a little bit um help us understand what you've seen in the literature uh of how much is too much you've talked a little bit about too little you know you talked about some of your vegan students you talked about that you talked about fractures you know and again if your muscle mass is that probably the best indicator is that if your muscle mass is going down regardless of what your dietary sort of uh, approach is you need to be thinking about a more sophisticated approach with protein in your in your diet and 
Is that the best indicator? Is muscle mass? Muscle mass is the quickest indicator, right? So you can get a you can get a, really a DEXA, right? Not yeah. just you just looking at yourself. You should know a little bit about. Yeah, but you is. can also have something at home that gives you an approximation, right? They right. cost a hundred dollars. Scales. You know? Yeah, the, some scales measure your fat percentage, right? So it gives you approximation. Then you can see if it matches. Once you go to the doctor and get the DEXA, if you're pretty close, then then good, right? So you can do that. And so yeah, the, the 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 muscle mass and the fat percentage give you a good idea of uh, are you really getting in the wrong track. But then eventually, I think we'll have to do frailty measurements, right? So it's about if you go up the stairs, how quickly can you go up the stairs, right? Uh, can you still run? Um, can you um, you know if you go and walk for two hours, are you okay with it, right? So all these things are measures, can be simple measures of frailty. If you start struggling uh, going up two flights of stairs at the airport, you're frail, right? You, you're, you're becoming, you're having problems, right? So you, you need to make sure that it's not just about the muscle mass, it's about the functionality. Uh, and and uh, yeah, going up the stairs is a good way to, um, to assess, right, whether you have big problems. And, uh, but uh, eventually there are, you know, we even do it for mice now, there are battery of frailty tests. They look at everything um, and, and, you know, including walk speed and, and the ability to blow into, uh, you know, how much strength your lungs have, et cetera, et cetera. So those, um, I, I hope soon enough, we're starting to do that in the clinics, uh, in the foundation clinics. And I think, you know, within a few years, everybody should be doing this, these things, right? So assessing, Based on your age, your frailty and functionality should be this. Um, and you could also do it with the Horvath and, or the Levine biological clock measurements. So, so now you have ways to do it at the DN level of DNA or the level of blood, but those are more molecular. But you want to make sure that those molecular tests match the, the actual functional tests. Can you still run? Can you still go up the stairs quickly? You know? We've had a lot of uh, physicians on this podcast that have come on. And when I talk to them about like, if there was one test that people got that would kind of give you a good idea about just their health and their metabolic health, often the one that keeps on coming up is like fasting insulin, right? How much do you give weight to that in your clinics? And would you toss out a different marker uh, of something that people could look at to see, are they headed in the right direction or not headed in the right direction? Well, of course, um, the uh, I would start with the standard, you know, doctor blood test, right? Look at every single one of the markers, right? And, and if your cholesterol is too high, you're not in the right direction. If your blood pressure is 137, you're not in the right direction. Um, and um, if your fasting glucose and insulin are too high, uh, you're not in the right direction. So all each one of these, of course, tells you, part of the story and uh in any of them uh, uh, that are in the wrong range are telling you that um you you're gonna have a problem it's just a matter of time and you're gonna be on drugs you know we know that after for age 45 um you know the average american is is on is two uh or more chronic conditions um, and that's the reality of of most people and then by the age of 65 you're up to three or so you know Going back to the fasting mimicking diet, one of the things you had mentioned is that the percentage of calories that come from fat is higher than a lot of people would assume 
you know, in a program for longevity. You said, I think it's like 40 something percent? 45, yeah. 45%. When somebody's continuing and they're in the refeeding process and they're doing the longevity diet, again, you don't measure calories and we don't talk about measuring calories on this podcast either. But if you would generally look at some of the longest living societies and communities that are out there, what do they think of when it comes to fat as a makeup of their diet? And what are the best quality, what are the best types of fats that they're including? And what are some of the most worst types of fats that they're including in their diet? Yes. So if you look, it goes from zero to 30, right? So Okinawa, very low fat, very low fat diet. And they still get to record longevity. And uh, the Greeks, the Italians, um, the Loma Linda people, pretty good levels of fat, maybe 30% or so of the calories are coming from fats. And uh, and what you see over and over and over represented all the pillars, not just the centenarian's observation, are um, the olive oil, uh, the, the almonds, the hazelnuts, um, the walnuts, um, the salmon, uh, the uh, dark chocolate, say 85%. So those are pretty consistently appearing over and over and over, like in in the as a positive um, association. So so I would say to those that argue much lower fat diet, I would say that the evidence from almost all the pillars is against it, as long as they come from these sources. Now, when you look at animal-based fats, animal-based proteins, everything turns around. Now you got a problem. And uh, and so the, all the Harvard uh, epidemiological studies over and over and over are showing high animal fat, high animal proteins, shortened or greatly shortened lifespan or, or increased mortality um, from overall mortality as well as you know, cancer mortality, cardiovascular mortality, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so then pretty clearly, um, if you think, put it all together, you get... 30% calories from fat, lots of olive oil, lots of um, nuts, and maybe a variety of nuts. Don't exaggerate because nuts are also an allergen. And so some people, <clears throat> uh, they hear like, uh, oh, this is good for me, quinoa, right? That's <laughs> just another way. Uh, so they hear about, um, you know, walnuts are good for you, and they start eating, you know, 50 grams of walnuts every day. Well, you do that, and it wouldn't be surprising if, Six months later, if your family especially doesn't come from a, a, a high nut consumption um, history, uh, you may develop an allergy to that. And then you st stop eating walnuts completely. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's good. And, and, of course, we've seen this with, with gluten and the celiac, not just the celiac disease, but also the, the gluten sensitive. So a small percentage of the population has an autoimmunity mm -hmm. against gluten. But a larger percent of, the, percent of the population probably has developed sensitivity to gluten, right? So it's the same thing with these healthy foods. Uh, olive oil, I haven't seen very much, right? So it may be that olive oil is, uh, you can be fairly high in the, the, the famous asterisk study. There's a New England Journal of Medicine paper on thousands of people. They were giving them a ton of olive oil per day and, uh, and, and observed them for five years. And then they had to stop the, the trial because the the olive oil people were doing so well uh, compared to the low-fat group. Right, I saw uh, that. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so olive oil doesn't really seem to be associated with much allergies, intolerance, et cetera, 
But uh, yeah, so the nuts, you got to pay attention. And also the salmon, you got to pay attention. There are some toxins that accumulate in the fats of the salmon. So you can't just say, oh, this is good for me. So I'm going to just have 10 a day or, or 10 a week, right? So it's good to say, okay, maybe I have salmon once or twice a week. And, um, you know, maybe olive oil I can have every day, limited amounts. Maybe I can rotate between 20 or 30 grams of different walnuts, hazelnut. And uh, uh, and uh, uh, almonds, uh, so that's a, probably a good uh, a good way to do it. You know? And where does dairy fit into this? Uh, you know, one of the things that people anecdotally sometimes talk about. Uh, you you know, my business partner very well, Dr. Mark Hyman. He was spending time in the Blue Zone region in Italy and with the families, and he was mentioning how a lot of them are, you know, have goats and sheep, and they eat cheese throughout the day and. One of the things he was saying is that they'll pre-season the cheese by getting their goats and sheep to eat from the shrubs of certain types of food so that by the time they make the milk, it has the flavor of rosemary or has the flavor of this, that. Where does that come in? Because uh, I guess the question is that even in Loma Linda, and I understand that one of the challenges now is that a lot of people are not really eating and living the way that, that traditionally those regions did. So it's becoming harder and harder to do those studies uh, that maybe originally inspired like the work behind the blue zones, but yeah, where does dairy fit into this, if at all? Yeah, so um, the the Okinawans, of course, had zero dairy. Sure. And uh, um, and I would say when I I visit the centenaries in Sardinia every year, and uh, and I would say when I really spend a lot of time with them, they would say that. Dairies were there, but they were expensive, and sometimes it was much more about vegetables. And dairies where they used to sell it, uh, so they can get more vegetables or, or, the, or bread or any or things that they. So they, they would sell it so that they could have more money for other stuff. Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't mean they didn't have dairies, um, but dairy, but uh, but not very much, right? Not not as much as now that the the shepherds they would go and for months be away. They may bring for three months a year or whatever. They may bring dairy with them, cheeses with them, um, and uh, and so there was probably a lot more common, but uh, it was seasonal and and probably never made it to more than three or four months a year. Um, and of course, these shepherds are also walking maybe 10, 15 miles a day up the hills uh, in, in Sardinia. So yeah, like you said, it was a very different world and um, and also the genetics are certainly I mean I, I bet that the genetics are way underestimated. We're doing the studies right now on that on the Sardinians and to try to figure out genetics versus uh, lifestyle. And I think they're both important, right? So, but of course, if you start already with, like Emma Morano with a very strong genetic uh, advantage then the red meat or the eggs are not that big of a problem for me. And we know this also from studies of, of cholesterol, right? So some people can have three eggs a day, zero change in or very little change in, in cholesterol. And some people have three eggs a day and this cholesterol goes sky high. So, so yeah, so we know that genetics can, can uh, um, affect, does that cheese give you a heart attack or, or not, right? So, yeah, so I would say that for most people, cheese does not come up in this new... Uh, meta-analysis, huge study that came out in PLOS Medicine just a few months ago, confirmed that the cheese um, and the, even the white meats, uh, it was in the neutral range. Neither bad for you nor good for you. 
So if you have you know low amounts of it, it's probably okay. Uh, but uh, the legumes came out on top. Whole grains were under it. The nuts were way hard up there. Um, and the no red meat, no processed meat was very important for the life expectancy increase. But the white meat and the eggs and the cheeses uh, uh, came. Well, eggs actually were in the neg negatively associated with uh, longevity, but the cheese I think was neutral. So, do you avoid eggs in your own life? Maybe uh, two a week. Two a week. Got it. You know, you're mentioning about the sheep herders, and one of the things that you said is that you know they were walking a lot, and one of the things you know part of the longevity diet is not just a diet that you eat; it's a lifestyle that you live, and Tell us how you came to the conclusion that walking an hour a day is so central to the aspect of longevity. First and foremost, food interventions, nutrition interventions, fasting in the fasting mimicking, those seem to be at least the way you've shared it before, a higher weight. But in addition to that, the movement piece of which walking a day is one part of it. We'll get to exercise, rigorous exercise in a second. But how did you find out that uh, walking one hour a day was a crucial piece of the puzzle? Well, there's a lot of, I mean, first of all, um, I rarely meet centenarians that don't have that story of work, working in the field or being shepherds or doing some manual labor, right? So, so that's already a good indication. And we're talking about not an hour a day. We're talking seven or eight hours a day. So I thought that an hour a day is a good compromise for people, and uh, and you gotta find the time, right? So you cannot, you should not have the excuse. I don't have time to to walk one hour per day, and and then there's a lot of studies now that are that are proposing and or indicating that people that regularly uh, walk. Uh, they do better than everybody else. And from a habit standpoint, is there a way that you, you know, you're busy, you're, you have all your work, your research, your for-profit companies, which are, have a major nonprofit element, you know, all your shares being donated to the greater good of public and addressing chronic disease and helping to cure chronic disease for people, but it's a busy life. So on a practical level, what are some of the things that you figured out for your own life to get in and squeeze in those hour or as close to it as possible? Yeah, so the way I did it, well, first of all, and we'll, I guess we're going to talk about it, I recommend 150 minutes uh, of exercise a week. Um, and I do about an hour every other day. And uh, But the walking, uh, to me, it was just picking uh, two places per day that are 50 minutes away. right? And, uh, and then getting in the habit of going twice a day, 15 minutes, I say, I get coffee, come back, get whatever, and come back, and that's an hour, right? So yeah, once you get used to it, then, uh, then you, uh, you're sort of looking forward to it. Uh, it just gets you away from whatever it is that, that you're doing in, in, on your computer or anything else. So like your lunch, for example. You said you sometimes skip lunch and have coffee. Well, most days it sounds like. So you would incorporate that there? for example, have a coffee yeah, shop that so, you could walk to? So while I'm in the United States, while I'm in Italy six months a year, I have lunch every day and I gain some weight. While well, I'm in the United States, <laughs> um, I, Monday to Friday, I don't have lunch, right? So I'll go and get coffee uh, 15, 20 minutes away. So that's already 40, 45 minutes, just uh, that one single walk. And then 
you know, I, I definitely get over one hour a day of, of, of walking. So, yeah, so I think that's, uh, that's very important. And also, I never touch elevators. I, I do anything as physically as possible, right? The, the, the groceries, uh, just any opportunity I have, I try to do it the old way and without hurting myself. But, um, you know, so for example, you know, uh, push-ups, um, you know, almost every day and, and, and it's things that they maintain you physically working uh, and using most of the muscle that you can use in your body um, yeah so if, but uh, but for sure stairs and um, and uh, and walking uh, is uh, is a lot of my day right so as an Italian I got to get your recommendation for like the coffee shop that's worthwhile for that 15 minute walk both ways. So since I live not too far away from here, I'll have to get your favorite coffee recommendations so I can start going there too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about a little bit, you know, in addition to, we've talked about the food piece, which, you know, we've addressed the fat, the protein, the importance of a lot of plant rich foods inside of the diet. We talked about the fasting piece. We talked about now the movement piece that's there. Are there other elements that, make this a complete picture from your eyes of getting all these benefits so that we could potentially live longer uh, or at least to the highest of our genetic potential in our lives. Is there anything else that you want people to be thinking about in this, uh, in this context of, even if it's not your exact research, it's kind of periphery around your research? Yeah, so I am very interested uh, now Peter Diamandis and, and others are talking about stem cell therapy right so i think it's really interesting and i think it's um we need a lot more research more clinical research uh in uh, you know what can stem cells and, and which type of stem cells can be injected in somebody in a mouse and then in a person and in uh, what is the best way to get them to I mean, of course, a, an embryonic stem cell, say a totipotent embryonic stem cell, can rebuild a, a human being, right? And uh, um, so um, is there a way to, and we're starting to work, uh, well, we've been working on this for a while, but now we're starting to focus more and more on it. Is there a way to uh, partially rebuild organs and systems uh, by um, by looking at certain type of stem cells, uh, but then the tr biggest trick is how do you get them to do that, right? So you let's say the brain is going to be the the ultimate challenge. So you have this brain, the great majority of neurons are, are are not dividing. So how do you replace neurons, this incredible network of neurons? Uh, with new ones, right? So, I mean, these are, of course, the science fiction, border, science borderline science fiction questions, but we're very interested in, in, in that. In you know, some of the realistic things, now you're starting to hear about, oh, you know, um, I had knee pain and I injected the stem cells and magic uh, and I don't have a knee pain anymore. What is it true? When is it true? And why is it true? And how do we make it better? And uh, can we actually, you know, completely replace somebody's blood and, and immune cells non-invasively? And, non and uh, so now you have, a, you know, a, a younger immune system. Uh, yeah, so I think we're getting close to this kind of um, interventions. And uh, it's still very scary. I always tell people I was in the lab back in the 90s, early 90s, where... 
and my NAMI, somebody in my lab, together with a group in the East Coast, they discovered the gene for Lou Gehrig's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So, and it was a mutation in the SOD1 gene, superoxide dismutase. And so when that happened, we thought, great, you know, in a few years, we're gonna have a cure for, <laughs> for Lou Gehrig's disease. And now 30 years have gone by, and we're still not even close to a cure <laughs> for Lou Gehrig's disease. Right. And we knew, we know, like one of the, the, the mutations that cause the disease. And you think, how long could it possibly take now that we have that? That's what everybody thought, right? So my point is, it takes a lot longer to go from it's possible or I know what causes the disease to uh, the full implementation. safely implement it on people without risking their lives and without risking that they get a cancer, they get a, you know some, some big problem. Um, you know, look at the vaccine, right? There's a big movement around the world. I don't want to get vaccinated. I had top world, world top scientists, my friends saying, I'm not going to get the vaccine, right? A vaccine, right? So, because they're worried about the long-term consequences, right? So- And do you feel they're just in that feeling? They made, they certainly made some good arguments. So mm -hmm. I, I think we all felt we don't have the time to, because it would take weeks to go through all the literature and figure out, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a virologist, so I didn't do that, right? So, and nobody I know did that. So I stopped everything to take two or three weeks and figure out, could they be right? I, I didn't do it, so sure. I don't know. I mean, to tell you, I mean, uh, probably not. Probably the, the virus is more scary than the, the vaccine by far. That's what it looks like. But did I review the literature carefully? No, I didn't. And so until that, and maybe together with a team of specialists, um, I don't know. I, and, and so, yeah, so just to put it next to, the, let's say, stem cell therapies or, or any other therapies like that, especially all these drugs we hear about, you know, take this and take that. Um, well, what do you know? How do you know what's going to happen to you after 20 years of that? Could I, have you, could I have presented to you cocaine, you know, 50 years ago and told you this is magic? You should take a lot of it. You know? <laughs> it's gonna make you feel great. Um, so, yeah. So I think there's irrational exuberance, uh, which might hide actually some success stories. Um, and I don't mean to go slow because we love to go fast on this, but we love to go fast and careful because we don't want to take anybody's ability to get to 110 healthy, which is a clear. It's a real thing, right? It's, it's a reality. We don't want to take that reality away from anybody. I mean, I'd be like, I would feel very bad for the rest of my life if I knew that even one person, I shouldn't have done that, right? I, you know, I, I told them something and, um, and this shortened their, their life. You know? So for these other things, and you mentioned uh, Peter Diamantes, there's a hopeful optimism, but there's still a lot of work to do is what I'm hearing from you, right? There's a hopeful optimism, but... We got a lot to prove and show to see if these things. Yeah. Well, and there is a reality there too, right? So for certain things, we might be getting, getting very close, right? Let's say the knee injury. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not an expert on all the literature on that. But it sounds like we're starting to have some success story, finally, right? After 40 years of this, uh, I remember the, the, it was, I think it was the UK Minister of Health 30 years ago saying, this is going to be the miracle. Stem cell, stem cell, stem cell. <laughs> 30 years ago, right? right? Finally, 30 years later, we're starting to see some success stories. So great, you know, are there some things that have been given to lots of people, lots of clinical trials, they're safe and effective? And let's start with those as soon as we, we can. Um, but then the rest of it, yes, we need uh, a lot more 
funds, a lot more tasks, a lot more science, and a lot more careful thinking of, yes, it could do a lot of good for me, could also do a lot of bad for me. We started the interview with you saying, everybody skip breakfast. Uh, so we're so excited about the, the efficacy of the 16 hours that we forget that most studies show that breakfast skipping kills you early. On that note right now, because longevity is even more popular than ever before, and everybody's writing a book on it, and everybody's talking about it now, and a lot of them, of course, referencing your work and your literature, and then putting their own spin on different aspects of it, some that's backed up, some that's not backed up, probably a lot that's not backed up. There's a lot of conversation these days around um, you know, the use Similarly to what you were sharing, the the use of things like uh, resveratrol and other supplements that people might be thinking about exploring. If somebody foundationally was doing a lot of the things you recommend, because again, it's always that foundation first inside of the longevity diet, and then depending on your disease state or your risk for uh, you know certain disease, incorporating in the fasting mimicking diet into your routine at a frequency that makes sense for you. If somebody had those. How do you feel about them dipping their toe in the water with some of the quote-unquote longevity supplements? Worth it, not worth it, or let's wait and see? I would say for the great majority of people, let's wait and see. And um, and I will want the pillars, right? I will want the epidemiology, human epidemiology to be there. I will want the centenarian data or certainly like metformin. Metformin is starting to get in a good range. You don't have the centenaria, but you have 50 years of people taking it, right? Okay, so then it's starting to be good data, epidemiological, clinical from it, mouse uh, research. And by the way, metformin doesn't do a lot for a mouse. So that already should maybe make you wonder um, but uh, it's got potential. So, so uh, yeah, so I think there are a few things out there that may start having data from multiple pillars and indicating safety. And, uh, and so for, especially for a, a category of people, they could be very useful, right? So if, you, if you're obese and insulin resistant, metformin may be a very good idea for you if you're not willing to do anything else. Now, will metformin block you from doing something that clearly is going to work? Um, and, and, and so if, if that's the case, then, um, then I think that um, then it's a problem, right? So if you could do something that reverses, as we've seen with lots and lots of people in the trials, and, uh, but you don't do that because you have this magic drug, then I would say not a good idea, right? For those that can do it, and they can really fix the problem from its source, right? So fix the insulin resistance from its source. Deplete, go down to the right level of fat accumulation. You know, go down up to the right level of, of exercise, of weight training, et cetera, et cetera. That is by far the, the, the right way of doing it because it's going to also make you feel better. Uh, but, um, but I think that is lots of these uh, drugs have potential. And so we just have to uh, to wait and see, um, you know, what are the risks and what are the potentials. I'm a little concerned about, as I was even, you know, so my laboratory first discovered the TOR, cis pathways role in aging 20, over 20 years ago. 
And I was always worried about rapamycin. So we were receiving rapamycin from Mike Hall back in the mid-90s. I remember we were testing this in yeast. And, uh, and we saw a little bit of lifespan extension, but not very much. And, uh, but we, I was always worried because it was intervening at the center of life, right? So we intervening at the center of a cellular function. And I thought, it's a little scary, right, to be blocking. It's a blocker, right? So it's blocking this pathway that is at the center of growth, it is at the center of protein synthesis, et cetera, et cetera. And um, yeah, so I am also concerned from a fundamental, from a, a, a theoretical point of view, um, and an evolutionary point of view, uh, I'm concerned about blocking, interfering with the heart of a cell hmm. and the heart of a human being. Uh, I'm less worried about when you interfere, for example, and that's one drug we're working on, growth hormone receptor, because now you're looking at the master regulator. So the growth hormones that are regulating almost everything. So I, I think I'm less concerned about that than um, that I am when you're going right into the middle of a cell uh, because then you have to say, if you keep doing that for decades, uh, what's going to happen? Now, if you keep doing that with growth hormone, we know what's going to happen because we have people that have growth hormone receptor deficiency and they, if anything, they live longer, they don't get diabetes, they are, rarely get cancer, um, they're cognitively doing better. These are humans, they're mice. And, but the mice have the same phenotype. They, they, they live 40% longer, by the way. So when you see that, you know, worms and flies and mice and humans, then it's good news. We don't really have that yet from most of the supplements out there. Uh, so, yeah. So I think that that's also uh, at, at the theoretical level, something that should be kept in mind. What is it going after? Metformin is something else that's going to the middle of the cell and uh, interfering with mitochondrial respiration, interfering with gluconeogenesis, the generation of new glucose. Um, so uh, interfering with some of the growth pathways. And also probably the question is, compared to what? You know, pharmaceutical companies don't often have to talk about their drug that's being developed in comparison to, let's say, dietary interventions. It's sort of like, here's what this drug does on its own. Well, could you get that same benefit through some sort of lifestyle modification in the case where people might be taking metformin as primarily an optimization tool, not because they're diabetic? You know, yep. that that's also a question that's there compared to what that's also available to us. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you don't want to get in this mentality of, uh, oh, yeah, this lifestyle change, but that's just so that one day I can have a drug that does the same. And there is also another reason for that, the psychological advantage. We're, we're underestimating the importance of a reasonable challenge, right? So what's a reasonable challenge? So if I told you uh, you got to run 100 miles a week, that's not a reasonable challenge. It's a tough, tough one. You're never going to be able to do it all the time. But if you said, you know, walk an hour a day and do, I don't know, 10 miles a week, that, that's reasonable, right? So then would you recommend that people stop running because we have a pill for it? I don't think it's a good idea. Even if we had the pill and it was safe and I knew that, oh, I have the running pill. <laughs> We're going to tell children, oh, don't worry about it. Don't run anymore because we got a pill for you. Um, so I would say that's a bad idea no matter what. 
so all this biohacking and all this technology should not take away from this like very important aspect of once in a while, it may not be a bad idea to fast for five days, right? This have this challenge. Forget the benefits that you get, but also the challenge of, or just stop eating. That's okay, right? What happens when you stop eating? Or the challenge of, hey, I have to go and run up up the hill, or you know, a, a, a lots of staircases. Um, yeah, can I get a pill so I avoid staircases? And so the world is moving more and more in this direction of avoiding any effort and anything. And, uh, and not surprisingly, a lot of psychological disorders are going up with it. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm almost shocked in the United States how little we talk about this, right? The importance yeah. of difficulty and doing challenging things to build your character, to build who knows, all, you know, your spirit, all the aspects that come along with it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I did a presentation with some of the, some people from Coni, this uh, this uh, sport uh, national sport association in Italy, and the director was saying now we have a lot of children that don't even know how to do basic uh, physical games, right? Because uh, they never done it, right? They, they they're now eating. some of the things that for my generation were normal because we had fun doing it, and now there's so much protection and so much. Uh, um, uh, trying to avoid anything that could hurt you or that could uh, could be difficult for the child that uh, they forgot how to do it. They don't even know how to do it anymore. Uh, so, so yeah, I think it's, um, let's not underestimate the power of the challenge and, and just say, I did it. And this is why sometimes we do these fasting challenges and people are so happy at the end of it. And know? the beautiful so, thing about that is, and I've had friends do it together, it's in community. There's something beautiful about doing something with other people. By the way, if people who are listening to this podcast, you know, as we start to wind down and I'm honoring of your time that's here, if they wanted to do this fasting challenge that you guys host, can we put the link in the, the show notes? Do you know when the next one is, you know, they happen regularly throughout it's the year? It's not you guys because I'm Professor Longo of uh, University of Southern California. I speak as Professor Longo and I am the founder of a company, but I, uh, I'm not. Uh, so we'll ask I your team. I try to stay away from, from anything that is commercial. And as you pointed out, I, I donate 100% uh, of, I will donate 100% of the shares and I've already started doing that of the company to, to charity. So, but yeah, the company uh, has uh, programs and uh, and that's up to you to, if you want to talk about it, you can certainly talk about it, but, but I can't, yeah. Sure, sure. Well, we'll have the links. I know uh, the CEO of the company pretty well. We spent some time together. He's a very fantastic individual. He's uh, a good guy. Yeah. He's a good guy. And, I can uh, say that. Yes, yes. That's allowed. We can say that. <laughs> and he's a, he's a medical doctor, by He's the a way. medical doctor as well. Fascinating. Beautiful story. He told me all about his life and everything over dinner one day. Really beautiful. A uh, couple quick questions before we wrap up, and then you can send our audience all the places that we want to send them to. Um, wine. You know, just give us a little bit on that, right? Is it in the right dosage a good stressor that's there? Or is it one of those things that if you're not drinking it right now, it's not necessarily something that you have to be thinking about, or do you fall somewhere in that spectrum? Yeah, so I just got in a little bit of a friendly fight with two of the world uh, top epidemiologists uh, of aging, right? And uh, and the and the argument was over this uh, they, alcohol, wait, are, alcohol, and and diseases, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So um, their opinion was you should not drink at all. And uh, and I said, you know, I'm surprised. And I think 
if you're drinking low to moderate, you should continue to do that. And that's a recommendation in my book. Um, and then I went back and looked at because I wrote a new book. It's going to be out hopefully in about a year on cancer. And, um, and it confirmed. So the meta-analysis confirmed that low to moderate drinking, let's say up to five drinks a week, um, overall, if anything, is associated with a little bit of improvement in lifespan. And, and, and so, um, but there are some cancers that for, for which alcohol is a risk factor. And uh, so if you have, there's, it's listed in my original book and it's going to be listed again in my new book. So if you're at risk for some of these cancers, um, then uh, you probably shouldn't drink. Um, should you start drinking? I don't think it's, there's so many advantages that you should start drinking. But if you're already drinking, I think it's perfectly fine to, uh, to continue in the low to moderate range. And, uh, and, but check on these uh, five or six cancers for which uh, alcohol is a risk factor. Beautiful. Uh, Dr. Longo, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you squeezing me into your schedule and us being able to get to do this in person. I mean, I don't know about you, but in-person conversation is just so much better than having to deal with Zoom and then deciding, do I interrupt you? Do I not? If I have an interesting point to chime in and uh, just your dedication, your energy in this space and your commitment to really helping the lives of a billion people or more through your work. It's, uh, it's just truly inspirational. You know, it really is inspirational. So I thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, we'll have the link to your longevity diet book. When you your new book is out on cancer, we'd love to have you back on the podcast to, sure, to sure. get a chance to chat about that. And also we have a foundation nonprofit clinic Please. here in Santa Monica. It's createcures.org and people that are interested in, uh, in being helped uh, with lots of these things. There We have a team of uh, dietitians there. And um, you know, soon enough, we shall have physicians, but uh, right now we, we don't yet have them. We used to have them and then um, now going through some of the paperwork that is needed to, uh, to get them back there. Yeah. And uh, you guys also, at one point in time, I think you were talking about a fundraiser. A lot of our audiences here in Los Angeles, maybe we'll let them know if you guys do something like yeah, a absolutely. raise or something. I mean, if you go on the website and you're interested in, in, in donating or help us, uh, you know, yesterday, for example, we had uh, a Griffith Park, we had a uh, race together with... Uh, uh, finish the ride this organization uh, uh in los angeles and uh you know our part of course was create cures and and uh and what i mean the, the real focus of the foundation is how people that are in trouble like advanced stage cancer uh you know people with other major diseases and and beginning to have this multidisciplinary team that i was talking about earlier you know the dietitian the molecular biologist the physician the psychologist we don't have psychologists yet yet but we will soon hopefully so yeah the need for them to work work together in people that cannot wait seven or eight years for a fda trial to be finished uh, you know treating something that is untreatable right now yeah and a couple of things i'll mention again you don't have to mention it but i can get a chance to mention it i love the fasting mimicking bar right when people ask me like what is a good bar to have around and that actually works and you know has some good evidence behind it fasting mimicking bar i'll put that link in the show notes and obviously if you want to do the prolon method with the fasting mimicking diet with the box and everything we have the link to that inside the show notes as well and as a small token of appreciation because i know you're a huge dark chocolate fan i brought one of my favorite dark chocolates no affiliation with the company but i'll give it to you afterwards dr longo thank you for joining thank the podcast you, thank you. it's an honor enjoy to have it you.